0: If you have a Bible with you, please turn it to Luke chapter 2. We read this last week, we're going to read it next week. This series is kind of all surrounding Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But The angel said to them, do not be afraid. Last week, we started a series here at Chalmers called Why Christmas? It's a series that we're going to work on until the 23rd. And then we have two Christmas Eve services on the 24th, the one at 3 o'clock, which is going to be geared for, for younger children or families that have younger children. It's a little bit earlier in the day and then one at 7 o'clock, which is our Christmas Eve candlelight service. Uh, both are going to be here at the church, and we would love your help to promote them, to invite your, your friends and your family. In the past, we've put out big mailings, and we're not going to do that this year. We're really going to rely on both social media, but also word of mouth, because what, we, what I really believe is that people are much more likely to come to church when they have been personally invited. So please personally invite to one of those services, preferably the one that you're coming to. However, you're welcome to come to either. Last week, we started our series, Why Christmas, by looking at why a baby? Why did Jesus come so frail, so weak? If you want to Check that out if you weren't here, if you want to have a refresher, they're online. Today we're going to be talking about why Bethlehem? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why did Joseph and Mary have to trek it all the way down to Bethlehem when she was pregnant? Like, that sounds like really poor planning, don't you think? So we're going to talk about that today. And there's a few few things I want to share with you about that. The first is that Bethlehem was a fulfillment of prophecy. Bethlehem was a fulfillment of prophecy. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says this. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now let me give you a little bit of an insight into where Bethlehem is, what Bethlehem is. Today... Bethlehem is in the same place as it was before, which is about six miles south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the big happening city, and Bethlehem is kind of on the outskirts, six miles south of Jerusalem. Today, Bethlehem would have a population of about 27,000 people. About 60% of them are Muslim, 40% are Christian Arabs. But back in Jesus' day, when he was first born in Bethlehem, the archaeologists would say probably this was a small little hamlet of about 300 people, okay? Just a little bit bigger than I don't know, maybe. Bethlehem was 80 miles or 129 kilometers from Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph started out. And so they had to trek 80 miles or 129 kilometers on foot or on donkey to Bethlehem. The amazing thing that happens because, so we say, okay, this was a prophecy. So it happened because God said that it needed to happen. That's an okay answer, but it kind of says, well, but it sounds like it's just such a long way. Why did they even go to Bethlehem? The amazing thing that we see in Scripture is that God combined the powerful force and magnitude and authority of the Roman government with the Jewish focus and sometimes even obsession with their ancestral lines. And he took both of these things to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy From Micah. Let me share with that. For Jewish people, especially those who had returned from Babylon, from the Babylonian captivity, tribal identification. There was this idea and necessity to relate to your line of descent. It was very important for them to say, I'm from this family, I'm from this tribe, I'm from this lineage. and That is important to me. I'm Jewish because I'm so-and-so's grandson, so-and-so's great-grandson, and I can bring my lineage back to David or back to Abraham. Even though there was this distorted time in where they were captive, I'm still very much a Jewish man or woman because this is my family tree. We see that in in Matthew as well as in Luke where we have the genealogies of Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about those next week. But we also see Paul talk about his genealogy, where he was from. We see Pharisees kind of saying, well, I'm so important because I'm from this line and this lineage. And So these were important things. When you read through the the Old Testament, and some of you are going through this Old Testament challenge... And a a few months ago, we were reading through numbers. We were reading through some of these long lists of genealogies. And we go, why in the world are they part of the Bible? I was thinking that myself too. Don't worry if you're not the only one. Why are they part of the Bible? Who cares that so-and-so was so-and-so's son and -and so-and-so was so-and-so's father? The answer, the Jewish people. They desperately cared about that. It was so important to them. This was a significant part of their culture about who they are and how far they can trace their family back. Now, so you have this obsession in Jewish culture of lineage, and then you have the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has taken over Judea. They have taken over lots of other cultures as well, and they are trying to govern They're trying to govern and the interesting thing about the Roman Empire is that they learned from previous empires who had taken over before them that when a culture is squashed that the people have a harder time living under occupation. But if you allow the culture to flourish or allow the culture to have some of what they want then the people will be a little bit easier to manage. So the Roman Empire allowed the Jewish people, for example, to still worship in their temple. They had some restrictions, for sure, but they still allowed that to happen for a time. And they understood that the Jewish people had this real interest in their lineage. And so they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tax you a lot. We're going to take a lot of your money, but we're going to do it in a way where you think, okay, this is all right. We're going to send you back to your ancestral towns and villages for this census. And then we'll find out who you are, and then we'll collect our tax. It was brilliant. They understood that the Jewish people would go, Okay, I don't like the idea of giving money, but this is kind of like going back to my family tree. At least they respect that I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, or I'm from the tribe of of Ephraim. And so, what you see is this census takes place. It was the first of many, and it was a taxation census, where the Roman government said, we need to know who is part of our Roman Empire, so we know where to tax, and how to get those taxes from these people. And so, in the midst of all of this, is a young, pregnant woman, and her fiancé, And they are forced to head down to Bethlehem from Nazareth, 129 kilometers away. So, that's kind of part of the reason why Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because it was a prophecy. And God used the structures and the systems and the cultures in place in order to bring about a 700-year-old prophecy. Amazing. But I think there's more to that. I think there's more to that. Bethlehem, 300 people, was just a dot on the map. It was a fairly insignificant place. Yes, it was the city of King David. He had grown up there, but he didn't spend his time there. He then moved into kingship. He moved into the big city, and he prospered elsewhere. His family was from Bethlehem. But that's kind of about it. It's like when you you drive through places and it says, home of this very famous person, right? You know, Brantford, home of Wayne Gretzky. Fantastic. He doesn't live there anymore. Hasn't lived there for years. But if you look really close, you can find the house that he was born in. That was probably why Bethlehem was important. People would go, oh yeah, I remember King David. Let's go find the field in which he used to shepherd. So Bethlehem wasn't incredibly a popular place. And yet, one of the things that we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, is that God does things differently than we might. If I was in charge Jesus would be born in a palace. He'd be born in Jerusalem. Maybe He might even be born in Rome. Like, this would be impressive. But Bethlehem? Come on. But God does things differently than we do. God chooses insignificance, and he makes it significant. In fact, King David is a great example of that. David, who was one of the greatest kings of Israel, started off as a shepherd boy. Let me share with you the story of that. So, David is this young boy in a family of shepherds. His dad was a shepherd, he was a shepherd, all his brothers were shepherds. And there was this king, his name was Saul, and he was a king. Like, he was tall. He was taller than most people. He was handsome. He was rugged. He was a good fighter. He was like what you would consider to be a good king. The problem was that he stopped listening to God. He stopped trusting God. And so God took his hand off of Saul. And he said to one of his followers, a guy named Samuel, a prophet, he said, Okay, Saul has abandoned me, so I've abandoned him. Go, take a horn, and go and anoint the next king. I'm going to show you who that is. And so, what we see in 1 Samuel 16 is the telling of this. This is what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king." Time out for a second. It doesn't say it here, but my guess is that Samuel goes, can you give me directions to Bethlehem? Where exactly is that? I'm not used to going there. Back in. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Makes sense. If you're the king and you hear that a prophet is going with a horn of oil to go and anoint the next king, that kind of says that your job security is on the line, right? The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said, When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They had heard about this Samuel. They had heard that he doesn't always come with good news. He's God's messenger, and sometimes God's message is not a nice message. And so they trembled, and they said this, Do you come in peace? And Samuel said, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice as well. And so there's Samuel, ready to sacrifice, kind of looking around, going, I wonder which one of these guys is going to be king. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the firstborn, tall, rugged, handsome. And he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Again, from our perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Firstborn was the most important person. Represent. Firstborn. Yeah, I, I like this culture. When you're the firstborn, you get the privilege, you get the honor, you get the blessing, you get the inheritance. It is good to be first. So Samuel has that mindset. He goes, I know that it's always the firstborn that's the best. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Listen, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'm going to say that again. Listen to this. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The things that we think are important, the things that we would choose as our leaders, the things that we would choose as our kings, God says, that's outward. You may think that you're great because of X, Y, and Z, God says, I see your heart. Scripture continues. So Jesse then had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Again, put yourself in Samuel's shoes for a second. You're here to anoint a king. You're here incognito to anoint a king. And God has said it's going to be one of Jesse's kids. And so the first one goes by, no, it's not him. The second one goes by, no, it's not him. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh goes by, no, it's not them. God, I've run out of kids. There's no one else here. And so he asks Jesse, Are these all the sons that you have? Are you sure? And he says, there is still the youngest. He is tending the sheep. He didn't get invited to the party. He was so insignificant that he was left to tend the sheep. He chose the short straw because he was the short straw. David was left out. He was seen as the insignificant one. He was seen as the one that definitely could not be the next king. Uh, The end of the story is that he calls David, they anoint him as king. He goes back home to tend the sheep for another number of years. God doesn't choose those that we might see as so significant. He He chooses the insignificant and he makes them significant. He chooses the insignificant and he makes them significant. Another trend of God is that he chooses weakness to show his power. He chooses weakness to show his power. Paul writes to the Corinthians, in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let me translate that for you. We are weak. We are frail. We talked about this last week. Our bodies decay. Our bodies are fragile. We are like jars of clay. We can be useful, We're not strong, but he chooses to use us because he gives us an all-surpassing power inside of us, the Holy Spirit. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the third person of the Trinity, God himself comes and dwells in you, empowering you to do his work, to be his follower. Paul says he does that because then we don't take the credit. When someone gets healed, when someone hears about Jesus, when someone is blessed because of us, we don't go, yeah, that's me, because I'm just awesome at that. We know that it's the all surpassing power inside of us, not ourselves. Places the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can't take credit for it. He chooses weakness to show his power. And he's been doing that from the beginning of time. Let me just tell you a few people that he used who are fairly weak. Listen to this Abraham, he was old, Elijah was suicidal. Joseph was abused. Job went bankrupt. Moses had speech problems. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. The Samaritan woman was divorced multiple times. Noah was a drunk. Jeremiah was too young. Jacob was a cheater. David was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Peter denied Christ three times. Martha worried about everything. Zacchaeus was small and money hungry. The disciples fell asleep while praying, abandoned Jesus, and Paul persecuted the church. Those are not strong people. That's a list of losers. But God uses losers to show his power. God uses the weak To show his strength. God uses those that the world would say, I'm not putting my money on him. To show that it's God and not them. Let's read that list again. Abraham became the father of nations. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Joseph rescued his family From famine and became the second in command in Egypt. Job's testimony of God's faithfulness has endured centuries. Moses was used by God to part waters, do miracles, and rescue his people. Gideon defeated the Midianites with 300 men. Samson brought the house down. Rahab was rescued for her faithfulness. The Samaritan woman brought Jesus to her whole town. Noah was used by God to restart creation. Jeremiah brought God's word powerfully to a people. Jacob was used by God to be part of the lineage of Jesus. David was a man after God's own heart. Noah brought a message of judgment that turned into forgiveness. Naomi was the matchmaker of Ruth and Boaz. Peter was told that on this rock, I will build my church. He was one of the greatest church leaders ever. Martha got to see her brother raised from the dead. Zacchaeus had a lunch date that changed his life. The disciples were sent out boldly to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. And Paul, well, God used Paul to bring the gospel to us. None of these people were powerful in their own might. And yet, God chose them because He chooses to use jars of clay to show that His insurmountable power is made perfect in us so that we don't boast about anything, but we boast about God. He doesn't take the powerful, He takes the weak. Last of all, God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Because probably right now, you might be sitting here going, in that list of people, they sound a lot more like me than I thought. If God can use them, maybe God can use me. And yet we have this idea in our minds that God still needs to use the people who have all the talents and have all the skills and have all the education and have it all together when really he doesn't call those who have it all together he doesn't call those who are already and equipped he calls those who are obedient and he says I will equip you my Holy Spirit is enough for you if you will be obedient to me you will do amazing things Look at the disciples. They were fishermen, tax collectors, everyday Joes. And they changed the world because of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, Brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Amen. So I want to say to you right now, why did God choose Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem was insignificant and he made it significant. Because Bethlehem was weak and he made it strong. Because Bethlehem couldn't boast of itself. But it can boast of Christ. I don't know a ton of people who know where Chalmers Community Church is. Where's Armo? How do I get there? But God is using this church, this congregation. Not because we have the best speaker. Not because we have the best music. Not because we have it all together. Not because we are polished or perfect. But because we are authentic and humble. And God can use people like that. Because we are a church that says, God You get the glory and not us. God, we want your name to be praised, not our own. Because we don't raise and wave the Chalmers banner, but we raise the Kingdom of God banner. And we say, God is for your glory and yours alone. Because of that, God says, I can use a little church in the middle of nowhere to do amazing things for my kingdom. That's a church I can partner with. And he looks at you, and he says, if you're willing, if you're willing not to take the glory, if you're willing to point to me, if you're willing to be used in amazing ways, then I can use you. I can work through you. I can do amazing things through your life. If you're as humble as Bethlehem. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you call us to follow you, to lay down our lives and to live for you. God, I just confess right now for myself, for the people here, that we have that temptation to want to take the glory, that we have that temptation to want to be praised, that we have the temptation to want to be something big. But when we serve a God as big as you, we can't take the glory, we can't take the honor, we can't take the praise. It's you and you alone. So Father, we just ask that you would forgive us. And right now, we pray that you would use us as jars of clay. That you would put your treasure in our lives. That we would recognize that treasure in our lives. That all surpassing power is from you and not from us. And it is for you and not for us. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.